Our scripture reading from, for today is from Luke 18. If you would turn there with me, please. We will be in verses 1 through 17. Luke 18, verses 1 through 17. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear man, God, nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Thanks, Ashley. Um, we're continuing our study through the book of Luke this morning, and uh, your Bibles probably fall open there all by themselves anymore. Um, we've been here for a while, um, and so yeah, you probably don't even have to look too hard to find the verses when uh, people come up here to read them. But uh, yeah, we're, we're working our way through the book of Luke together as a church. We've been here for a while. We've got a little ways to go. Um, we're here in Luke chapter 18. And as Ashley just read for us, we're going to look at three, um, I, don't know, I guess you call them accounts, three, three short accounts together this morning. Um, a couple of parables, and then the short story of uh, some infants being brought to Jesus. And and at first glance, these three paragraphs kind of seem to be a little bit random. Um, like, what in the world do these have to do with each other? Like, how did, how, why are they here? Why are they together like this? Um, but what we're going to see as we dig into these accounts together this morning is that, that, surprise, surprise, Luke put them here for a reason, and he put them together for a reason. Um, and so, like, he told us way back at the beginning of the book, right, back at, at the very beginning of the book, that he's writing an orderly account. And so our expectation should be that he's not just randomly slapping stories together, but that he's, he has a purpose in stitching these things together the way that he does, and, and we should be looking for the lessons that he's trying to help us learn in the way that he puts these accounts together. And 
so to be able to connect the dots for the three little sections here that we're looking at this morning, um, we need to see them within the wider context that we've been looking at together. And specifically, we need to think back to where we were last week uh, at the end of chapter 17. And so if you were here with us last week, uh, John preached on two characteristics of true disciples of Jesus. And so last week we saw from the account of Jesus healing the 10 lepers, how disciples are grateful for the Lord's mercy. And then we saw in the rest of chapter 17 how disciples are ready for the Lord's return. And that second part there is specifically what flows into this section of chapter 18 that we're looking at this week. So if you remember from last week, the the Pharisees initiated the conversation back in chapter 17, verse 20, by asking Jesus when the kingdom of God was going to come. And Jesus answered their question by first confronting their expectations of what the kingdom of God even, even was and how it was going to come. And so when they asked that question, what they're thinking in their head, what they're asking Jesus is, okay, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, when are you going to overthrow the Romans and, and bring in the kingdom and make Israel the greatest kingdom in the world? And so like, that's, what, that's what they would have had in mind when they thought about the kingdom of God. But Jesus responds to them by saying, hey, guys, your, your expectations are off. Like, that's not how the kingdom of God is going to get started. Instead, uh, like John talked about last week, he says, it's already here. Like, it's already, he, the, Jesus is already bringing in the kingdom. It's right in front of them. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. And so we're not going to take time to dig into all that again this morning. But, but the point was that Jesus is the Messiah King who is already establishing his kingdom. That's what Luke's been showing us all the way through the book so far, since the early part of the book of Luke, that through Jesus' miracles, he's demonstrating that he is the Messiah King who is establishing his kingdom. And as he's gathering the disciples, um, and he's forming the kingdom, and he's teaching them how to live as citizens of his kingdom. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees' expectations of the kingdom, but then he turns to the disciples right after that and fills things in a little bit more for them about the coming of the kingdom. And so starting in chapter 17, verse 22, Jesus has some things to say to the disciples about the the yet-to-come aspect of the kingdom. Like, yes, the kingdom is being established now, but it's also still to come in the future, and they're going to have to wait for it. Uh, they, they don't need to wait in an anxious way that they might miss it. This is what we talked about last week. It's going to be as unmistakable uh, when it comes as lightning flashing across the sky. Uh, but even though Jesus is establishing his kingdom now, they're going to have to wait for the day that he will fully and finally establish his kingdom. And one of the dangers of that delay is going to be losing sight of the fact that the kingdom is, is going to come and getting caught up in the routines of daily life, um, growing attached to the things of this world. And um, so John talked about all that last week. The the danger in all that is that when Jesus returns and finally establishes his kingdom, it's going to mean judgment for those who aren't ready for that day. Those who aren't ready will be taken away in judgment. And so that's how chapter 17 ended last week. And and so the question in light of that that's still lingering at the end of chapter 17 is, how do you make sure that you're not caught off guard on that day? 
Like, how are we supposed to respond to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and the judgment to come? How do we make sure that we're ready for that day so that we're not taken away in judgment like he warned at the end of chapter 17? And so we saw a few lessons last week from the end of chapter 17, but then there's some clues here in our passage today that, that Jesus, or, or at least Luke, and the way that he's putting these accounts together has the same topic in mind. So if you, if you notice there, as Ashley was reading, at the end of at the end of verse 8, the question there at the end of that first parable that we're going to look at here in a second uh, ties the application of the lessons there to the coming of the Son of Man, which is what Jesus was talking about in 1722. And in verses 15 to 17, um, Jesus is using the little children that are being brought to him to teach his disciples about who will and who won't enter the kingdom of God, which is what he was talking about at the end of chapter 17. So, so again, the question at the end of chapter 17 is how do we make sure we're ready for the kingdom and the judgment to come? And our passage this week is going to continue to help us answer that question together. So, so Luke, in answering that question, uh, gives us two of Jesus' parables followed by an account of infants being brought to Jesus. And, and that account of the infants being brought to Jesus is going to end up being the punchline uh, that the parables are setting up. And so I, I wrestled with the best way to walk through this together this morning because, number one, Luke put this in this order for a reason and usually don't want to mess around with that a whole lot. And it's usually not the best idea to give the punchline at the beginning of the story, right? So, uh, but I think just in understanding how all this fits together, it would, it'll be most helpful if we actually start at the end and we see the main point and then back up and walk through the parables in light of that main point and see how they illustrate that main point. So that's kind of how we're going to work our way through the passage this morning. And you can see that structure on your handout there. We'll see the main point in verses 15 to 17, and then we'll look at the two parables that illustrate that main point. So here's, here's the main point then that Luke is making through these three accounts here. In light of Jesus' warnings about the kingdom and the judgment to come from chapter 17, uh, the main point here is that the, the way to respond to Jesus' warnings about the kingdom and judgment to come is to receive the kingdom like a little baby. Um, let's look at verse 15 and, and we'll see how he's making this point. Um, verse 15, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So we're not told who the, the they here are, um, but it's probably safe to guess that it's the parents of these little children bringing them to Jesus. These, these little children, specifically even infants, little babies, um, the parents are bringing them to Jesus. And it says that they're doing this so that Jesus would touch them. Um, it doesn't say that they're sick or anything, so probably they were wanting Jesus to touch them and, and bless them in some way, uh, or maybe even because babies so often didn't survive um, in that context. Maybe they wanted Jesus to touch them and protect them from whatever might have caused an infant not to survive. But, but the main point is that people are bringing even infants to Jesus for him to touch them. Uh, look what happens, though. Um, it says, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So, like, the disciples get after these people for bringing their babies to Jesus. Um, we're going to come back to that in a little while. For now, look at how Jesus re reacts when he sees the disciples trying to run these little babies off. He says, verse 16, but Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Like, hey, guys, don't stop these little children from coming to me. Let them come. Uh, and here's why. For to such, to little children and babies, 
To such belongs the kingdom of God. And here's how the kingdom of God belongs to them. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, little, like a child shall not enter it. So there's the punchline there. Like, how do you make sure you're ready to enter the kingdom of God and not be taken away in the judgment to come? You receive the kingdom of God like a little child, like a little baby. And if you don't, you won't get in. That's, that's the punchline. So what, what does that mean? Um, so we have to be a little bit careful here because we, in our context now, have a much more sentimental view of children uh, and babies in our context than Jesus' audience would have. Like, we think of babies as cute and innocent and simple and fresh, and, and they symbolize newness and hope and bright future, right? And, and those are all good things. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't think of babies that way. Um, that's good. But, but if we read our modern view of babies into this and start drawing applications out of our understanding and our view, then, then we can get off track pretty quickly here. So here's what would have come to Jesus' audience first, uh, minds first when they heard him say this. Um, you can see this on your handout here. The, the way they thought of babies first was that babies are weak and helpless, um, they're weak and helpless. And we know this too, right? Like babies are really delicate, right? Like you have to be really gentle with them. Um, you have to protect them from all the things that could hurt them really easily. Like you have to get all the padding, you know, in their beds. Um, you, have to, you have to do the shopping cart covers, you know. You have to install the car seat just right. You have to put the little plugs in the electrical outlets. Um, to protect them from their bigger siblings. Um, and yeah, some of you know exactly what this is like. You're going through it right now. Babies are weak. They can get hurt really easily, right? And babies can't do anything for themselves. Like, they can't take care of themselves at all. They are totally dependent on someone else to take care of them and provide for them. If you leave a baby on their own, they're not going to survive very long. They need somebody to feed them. They need somebody to dress them. They need somebody to carry them around, change their diaper, clean them up. Like, they can't do anything for themselves. They're totally helpless and so that's the first thing that would have come to their minds is that babies are weak and helpless. And because babies are weak and helpless, uh, can't do anything for themselves, what do babies do? Um, and if you haven't been around babies enough to be able to answer that question, like we have a, we have a baby room, we could let you get some experience. But um, what do babies do because they can't uh, help themselves, can't do anything for themselves? They, you can see that in your handout next here. They cry out for what they need, right? Babies cry. They, they, they cry because there's something that they need, and they can't do it for themselves, and, and so they cry. And, and babies usually cry a lot then because there's a lot of things that they need that they can't do for themselves. And if you don't give them what they need, um, or at least what they think they need, uh, they're going to keep crying and keep crying until someone makes things right in their world again, right? Like, that's what babies do. So that's what Jesus' audience would have pictured when he said that they should receive the kingdom of God like a little child. They would have pictured a weak, helpless little baby crying out for what it needs. And guess what? Like when we back up then and we look at these two parables that lead into that little story there, we see that illustrated in both of these parables. We see someone in each parable who's weak and helpless and crying out for what they need. 
So we're going to see from both of these parables and what that looks like and how we're supposed to respond to Jesus' warnings and the kingdom and judgment to come. We're supposed to receive the kingdom like weak, helpless little babies who cry out for what we need. So now, now that our eyes are trained to look for that picture, let's look at how these two parables um, each unpack what that looks like, what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God like a little baby. So back up to chapter 18, verse 1, and let's look at the first parable here. And first of all, um, you see this on your handout. First thing we'll see is that in our weakness and helplessness, we keep crying out for Jesus to return and make things right. Look at chapter 18, verse 1 here. It says, and he, Jesus, told them, um, and if you trace this back uh, in, in chapter 17, 22, he's, he's talking to the disciples there. So he's still talking to them here. So he tells them uh, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So Luke tells us right up front what the main lesson from this parable is, which is really helpful. Uh, sometimes we wonder why all the gospel writers didn't just do that with all the parables. Um, but, but in this one, Luke's gonna, he tells us this is why Jesus told this parable. He told the disciples this parable to stir their hearts, to keep crying out, to keep praying, and to not lose heart, to not grow weary or give up. And so in the context we talk about, earlier, this makes a lot of sense, right? Like he told them that they're going to have to wait for the kingdom to come. And uh, it's, it's going to be tempting to get caught up in the routines of life and to grow attached to the world. And the more that happens, the less you start to believe that the kingdom is actually going to come. And the more and more tempted you are to just give up on the whole thing. And so Jesus is telling them this parable to stir their hearts, not to lose heart, not to give up uh, as they wait. And so what, what he does here in this parable is he contrasts losing heart uh, or giving up with always praying. So the opposite in this, in this parable of losing heart is going to be always praying. And so let's look at the story that Jesus tells to teach the disciples that lesson here. Um, verse 2, it says, He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So the first character here in this story is a judge. Uh, and the main thing that we need to know about this guy is that he's not afraid of anybody, right? Um, he's so powerful, he doesn't care what anybody thinks, uh, including God himself. Nobody's going to push this guy around. Uh, he's going to do what he wants, and he doesn't care who doesn't like it. That's, that's this judge. That's the first character here in the story. Um, the second character comes in in verse 3. It says, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So this, the second character here in this story is a widow. And, and just saying that in this context uh, was enough to tell the disciples that she's pretty much the, the polar opposite of the judge that we were just introduced to. Um, in this context, a widow would have been... Um, would have been completely helpless. She would have had nobody to protect her, nobody to provide for her. She would have been vulnerable to being taken advantage of, to being oppressed. Uh, and so where the judge was hard and powerful, the widow is, is weak and helpless. And what we're told that she's doing reinforces that picture. Um, somebody, someone has or is taking advantage of her and mistreating her somehow. Um, and, and she has no one to protect her. She has no one to even plead her case for her. She has to try to defend herself. 
and, and she knows that she's weak and she's helpless, and her only hope is for the judge to give her justice and make things right uh, with whoever's taking advantage of her and mistreating her. So she goes to the judge, and she cries out for him to make things right. And it says she keeps coming to him over and over again, crying out for him to help her. But based on what we were told just a minute ago about this judge, things don't look very good for this widow, right? The, the judge that she's dependent on for help doesn't care about anybody. So he's surely not going to care about a weak, helpless widow. Like this whole scene is set up so that we'll think, uh-oh, like this is not good for her. Um, she has zero chance of this judge helping her. And that's what we see initially in verse 4 here. It says, for a while he refused but afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So, so at first here, just like we expect, her cries for help don't do anything. Uh, again, the judge doesn't care about anybody, much less this nobody widow. Um, and he doesn't care what God thinks. So this weak, helpless widow isn't even going to show up on his radar. But then something starts to happen in the middle of the verse there. The widow doesn't give up. She keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. And she keeps crying out for justice and crying out for justice and crying out for justice. And, and this hard, powerful judge starts to wear down. That's what he says there in verse 5. It's like, this widow keeps bothering me. The, the word there, the bothering me, is like she's wearing me out. Um, and he says that he's got to do something so that she won't beat me down. Like, he sees that she's going to just keep mentally beating him down to the point that like, he's ready to do whatever it's going to take to make her happy so that he can get some peace and quiet again. And, and again, like in this picture, this metaphor of, of little babies here, like some of you moms and dads out there with little babies at home are going, uh-huh, I totally understand. Um, or, or maybe even older kids, but we'll name names. Um, so, yeah, so, so look how Jesus brings all this together then. Um, verse 6, he says, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Like, did you hear what that hard, heartless, powerful judge said? Like he gave in to the persistent cries of this weak, helpless widow that he cared nothing about. And so here's how Jesus said this applies to us. Verse 7, he says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So here's what all this means for us. Um, I think there's two key things that we have to pick up on to understand this parable. You can see this on your handout here, two, two keys to understanding the parable. Number one is that we are like the widow. We are like the widow. The, the widow in this parable here was crying out for justice, for her situation to be made right. Um, we have to see what she's doing here um, in light of chapter 17 and the kingdom of judgment to come and waiting for Jesus to return and make things right. And, and we can see the parallel. Like, like that's the cry that's ultimately in view here. Um, the cry for justice, for, for things to be made right, um, not just for anything and everything that we might want, but specifically for that, for that day, for that 
for, for Jesus to come back and make things right. The, like, this world is broken. Like, we are broken. This is not how things are supposed to be. Um, Jesus said he's going to come back. He's going to make things right. And so what we're supposed to do in light of that is to cry out for him to do it. And, and it's clear by the end of verse 8 here that that's the cry that Jesus has in mind here. Like, Jesus is wondering if he'll actually find that kind of faith when he does come. Like, how many people will be found actually still crying out day and night for things to be made right when he does come? And so, yeah, when we see this parable in that light, like, it's clear that we're like the widow. We're supposed to be like the widow. While we wait for Jesus to return, things are not right. We're, but we're, we're weak. We're helpless. We can't do anything about it on our own. And so we cry out for Jesus to come and make things right. Because like the widow knew that the judge had power to give her justice, and so she wasn't going to keep, she wasn't going to give up crying out until he did it. We know that Jesus alone has the power to make things right in this world. He's the only answer. He's the only one that can do it. And so we don't give up. We, we know that he's coming to rule and reign as king and make all things new. And so we cry out for him to do it. Um, it. It made me think of the Andrew Peterson song that we sing sometimes around here, He's Worthy. Like, listen to these words. Like, do, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't, let, won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Like, that's our cry. That's what we, we hear when we hear this parable, parable here is that things are not right. This world is broken, but we long for the day that Jesus is going to come and he's going to make things right. And so we cry out for that day. We're like the widow in the parable in that way. But here's the other key to understanding this parable here. Um, and you can see this next on your handout. God is not like the judge. That's the other key to understanding this parable. God is not like the judge. The judge in this parable didn't know or care about the widow at all. Um, she was nobody to him, and so she had to wear him out, wear him down to get what she needed. And the point of the parable is not that God is like that. The point is not that we have to keep praying and praying and crying out and crying out and begging for God to do what we want until we wear God down and he finally gives in to our requests. Like that, that's not what this parable is saying. The point is that God is not like the judge. God's not like that. Like he's the protector of widows. And more than that, like we're not strangers that he doesn't care about. We're his chosen people, right? Like he loves us. He's eager to respond to our cries and help us. We don't have to wear him down. We don't have to keep begging and begging in that sense. He's, he's gonna respond to our cries speedily, it says in verse eight here. And so in light of that, here's, here's the point of this parable. Um, you can see this next on your handout there is keep praying and don't give up as you wait for Jesus to return. Keep praying day and night for Jesus to come back and set things right. Not because you need to wear God down, not because you need to manipulate him to get him to respond to you, but because that's what weak, helpless little babies do, right? Like, we, we're weak, we're helpless, we, we have this need, and you're the one that can fix it. And so we cry out, and we know that in crying out that he loves us, and that he's eager to help us, and he's going to respond quickly to the cries of his people. And so 
in saying that, though, like we have to acknowledge, right, that it doesn't seem like he's responding very quickly. Like, it's been a little while since Luke 18, 8 here. Um, that, that doesn't seem very speedy. Jesus says that he's going to respond speedily. Well, it's been a little while. Um, so, but here's the deal. Um, continuing on with this metaphor of, of receiving the kingdom like little babies, what's another thing that's true about babies? They've got a really limited view of time, don't they? Um, really limited view of time. They haven't been alive very long, so a little bit of time feels like a lot, you know? Um, and so, yeah, if, if babies are crying and you don't respond to their cries right away, they, it feels to them like you're taking forever, doesn't it? Like you are, you're, you're giving up on them, um, and you've heard babies like this. Like you've heard them crying like they're sure that you're never going to respond. It's all over, you know? Um, but parents have a more accurate view of time, right? We, we see the delay as the short time that it actually is. Like, it may feel like forever to the little baby, but for us, we, we as parents see that it's just, it's just a little bit of time. It's, it hasn't been that long. And so, in light of that, like, we can see that that's true here, too. Like, we have a baby-sized view of time as we cry out for Jesus to come back and make things right. Like, it feels like it's been so long that we're just, we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to think it's all over for us. Um, but one day when he comes, we're going to see time more accurately, and we're going to realize just how quickly the Father responded to our cries. Um, it reminds me, as I was thinking about this this week, of, of the last few sentences of the, the book, The Last Battle, uh, the final story of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, parallels the return of Jesus and the beginning of the kingdom. Like, here's how C.S. Lewis um, described this perspective at that point says, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Like, oh, so good. Like, that, that's what it's going to be like for us in that day. Everything that we went through before that moment is just going to be the cover and the title page. We'll, we'll see then just how speedily God responded to our cries to make things right. So, so don't give up. Keep praying. Don't give up as you wait for Jesus to return. Um, and you can see this on your handout because persistence in prayer until Jesus returns is evidence of faith. It's evidence of faith. That's the point of the question that Jesus asks at the end of verse 8. Uh, persistence in prayer in this way is evidence that we believe that Jesus will come and that he'll make things right. And, and so that faith causes us to cry out day and night as we wait for that day. So the question at the end is like, yeah, do you have that kind of faith? Do you believe that he's really going to do that? Do you trust him enough to pray this prayer, to continue to pray, and to not give up. So that's, that's the first illustration of what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God like a little baby. And the second one then um, begins in verse 9. And, and in this parable, we'll see, um, you can see this on your handout, how in our weakness and helplessness, we humble ourselves and cry out to God for mercy. 
We humble ourselves and cry out to God for mercy. Uh, look at verse 9 um, in Luke 18 again. It says, he, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so again, um, Luke helps us see the lesson in this parable through his introductory comments again. Uh, it's a little bit different this time because he doesn't directly tell us here's the lesson like he did in the last one, um, but he, he, he tells us who this parable is directed toward. And it's, it's unusual enough that he does that, that it catches our attention, right? Um, he says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Um, he doesn't tell us exactly who those people are. And so we'll come back to that thought in just a minute. Um, instead, he's going to tell us a story that contrasts one character who illustrates what that attitude looks like with another character who illustrates the heart posture that should characterize someone who receives the kingdom of God like a little baby. So let's, let's walk through this parable here, starting in verse 10. Here's the story. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. So the two characters in this parable are a Pharisee and a tax collector. Um, and we've encountered these characters many times in the book of Luke. Um, we know that in the minds of Jesus' audience, the Pharisee would have been like the model of holiness and piety. Um, the tax collector was, was a notorious, like dirty, rotten sinner, right? Um, that's, that's the two caricatures that, that he's putting against each other here. We've also seen, though, several times in the book of Luke how Jesus likes to take those and, and reverse it. <laughs> and, and that's what he's going to do again. And so this is, the parable itself is pretty simple. Um, you got two men, Pharisee and a tax collector. They go up into the temple to pray, and, and the temple was like on top of a hill, so everybody went up to the temple. Um, and there were two times every day when people would gather corporately at the temple to pray um, during the burning of incense and then receive a benediction from the priest. And so basically these two guys are going up to corporate worship. Um, and so we get to listen then to the prayers that they pray, and then we're going to get let behind the curtain to see how God responds to each man's prayers. Um, so the first man, the Pharisee, is going to illustrate the attitude that Jesus is targeting with this parable. Uh, so let's look at him first in verse 11 here. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. So let's, let's look at this Pharisee's prayer a little bit. We're going to see how it illustrates two dangers for us. You can see this on your handout here, two dangers that the parable warns against. And, and they're basically the two things that are mentioned in the introduction to the parable. The first one is trusting in yourself that you're righteous. Trusting in yourself that you're righteous. And so there's a lot of clues that show that this is what the Pharisee illustrates, and it comes before he even opens his mouth. Um, the, the ESV that we typically read from here says that he was standing by himself and prayed thus. Um, standing was a common posture for prayer that maybe makes us, I don't know, rubs us a little bit the wrong way, but that, that was normal. That's, that's not an issue. Um, it could be, the way that that's worded, that the Pharisee found himself a place away from everybody else so that he could pray. But if you have the ESV, you might notice that you've got, you should, I think, have a footnote on the word prayed there. And if you look down at that footnote, you'll see that it offers another way that that sentence could be arranged. Um, that phrase, by himself, may not be modifying where he was standing. Um, it, it might actually be modifying to whom he was praying. 
Um, and a lot of commentators would say that's likely the better way to translate that phrase there. And so, so basically it's saying that the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself, uh, not by himself, but prayed to himself. And then look at what he prays. First, he thanks God that he's not like other men. Um, and then he begins to list off the people that he's talking about. He's got extortioners in the list here or thieves, uh, the unjust or the unrighteous, adulterers, this tax collector here. And, and he's thinking like all those breakers of God's law. Like, man, there are, there are some really sinful, gross people out there. But by God's grace, he's not one of them. Um, they're, they're not righteous, but man, he is. Um, and, and then he explains how he knows that's true in verse 12. And he gives two reasons. One, he fasts twice a week, and, he tith- and two, he tithes everything he gets. And so the, the point in those two statements is that he's going above and beyond what God's law required. The, the law only required you to fast once a year um, at the Day of Atonement, and, and it only required that you gave uh, a tithe of certain things. Like, this guy fasts twice a week, and he gives a tithe of everything. And so... Like, yeah, uh, but now he, he, does, he does start off by thanking God that these things are true, which sounds good, but then based on what he says from there on, it's clear that in his mind, he, his righteousness is based on what he has done. Um, he has himself convinced that he's not just better than these other people, like he's in a completely different category. And he has himself convinced that not only has he kept God's law, like he's actually gone beyond it. Um, so, so he may be putting this prayer in religious sounding language, but he's just talking to himself and he's talking about himself. Um, he's trusting in himself that he's righteous. He, and man, here's the scary thing in his prayer. He doesn't ask God for anything because he doesn't think he needs anything from him. Um, I mean, it, it's shocking, right? But we got to be really careful here because remember the other danger this parable is warning against. You can see this on your handout here. The other danger it's warning against is treating others with contempt. The Pharisee is guilty of this in his prayer for sure. I mean, half of his prayer is a list of sinners that he's disgusted by. Like, I mean, he even singles out this tax collector that we're going to look at in just a minute. And so, so the Pharisee here is an illustration of treating others with contempt and, and even in his prayers. Um, but Here's where this parable begins to turn the mirror around on us and expose our hearts. Think about this for just a second. Like, how, how do you react to the Pharisee for the way he prays here? Like, do you start to look down on him a little bit? I mean, like, what a self-righteous snob, right? Like, what a jerk. I mean, aren't you glad you're more decent than that guy? Like, we'd never say those kind of things about other people, would we? Like, we, we definitely wouldn't pray such self-righteous prayer like that. My goodness. And, and as we start to realize what we're saying, like, all of a sudden, we realize what our prayer is, is, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. And we realize that, that we're guilty of doing exactly what the Pharisee is doing here. Oh, man, when you see that, like, it starts making, making you look at everything up to this point in this parable a little bit differently. Like, who, who do you assume Jesus is talking to in this parable when you read that first line there? Like, like if you're like me, you probably assume he's talking to the Pharisees, especially since the Pharisee is the, the first example here. Like, it just makes sense, right? Um, they're the ones that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Surely that's who Jesus is telling this parable to. Maybe. Um, but, 
But remember what happens right after this in verses 15 to 17? Like, what do the disciples do? They rebuke people for bringing little babies to Jesus. Like, oh, man, how dare those people bother Jesus with these little babies? Like, they're not worth Jesus' time. He's way too important and busy for weak, helpless little babies. Like, he only has time for important adults like us. Like, they treat little babies with contempt, right? They put little babies in a different category than themselves. So they're doing the same thing. The disciples are doing the same thing as the Pharisee does in this parable. So so our assumption that Jesus is telling this parable for a group of people that we don't think we belong to exposes our hearts even more here. Like, oh, we're we're just as guilty as the Pharisee in this parable here. And and that's good for us to realize, right? Because once we realize that, we're in a much better position to be affected by this parable the way that we should be. So in light of that, like, if you're honest... Who would be in your list of people that you're glad you're not as bad as? Who would you compare yourself to, feel pretty good about how righteous you are? Do you even like the Pharisee? Have you, have you convinced yourself that you've gone beyond the righteousness that God requires? Like, not only do I do this, I do this. Not only do I not do this, I don't do that, you know? Um, Man, it's so easy to do. Like, do you find yourself not asking God for anything because you don't really think you need anything from him? Like, those are the dangers that this parable is warning against. And to the extent that you or to the extent that I'm struggling with those things, like, we've forgotten who we are. Like, we're weak, helpless little babies who can only cry out to God for what we need. Oh, praise God, the parable doesn't end here. Um, There's another character who illustrates what it looks like to receive the kingdom of God like a little baby. Look at verse 13 here. It says, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like the tax collector's prayer couldn't be more different than the Pharisee's. Um, And like the Pharisee, you start to see it before he even opens up his mouth. He's standing to pray to, but he's far off. Like he's too conscious of who he is to just waltz right into the middle of God's people and and into God's presence. Um, He can't even make himself lift up his eyes to heaven, which would have been the, the normal way to pray. That would have been a normal posture for prayer. Like he's too embarrassed over his sin to even look up to heaven. And he's beating his breast, which would have been it would have been a sign of deep mourning, like at a funeral. It's something somebody would have done at a funeral. So he's grieving over his sin. So before he even opens his mouth, we see this weak, helpless person who knows that he needs help and he knows that he can do nothing for himself. And then his prayer, where the Pharisees is lots of words, his is short, just a few words, but oh, they're so powerful. Um, the ESV translates it, God be merciful to me, a sinner, but the word there is actually the, um, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Um, he sees himself not just as one in a big group of sinners, um, but, you know, it, yeah, it's not just, well, I, yeah, I guess I'm a sinner because we're all sinners. Um, no, like he's guilty and he knows it and he feels the weight of his sin and he knows that he's in big trouble. And that phrase there, be merciful to me, um, it shows that he knows what he needs because it, it's a word, the be merciful to me, it's a word that also gets translated as propitiation in the New Testament. It's, it's related to atonement or the mercy seat in the Old Testament. Like this, this 
tax collector knows that he needs a blood sacrifice to cover his sin, make atonement for him, make him right with God, satisfy God's wrath toward him. And so he's praying, God, make atonement for me. Like he's weak and helpless and he cries out to God for mercy. And so look, look what Jesus says the result of these two prayers is in, in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. Uh, and here's why. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the tax collector goes back down from the temple justified, forgiven, atoned for, and the Pharisee did not. Like, it's shocking. The, the person that everybody would have been sure was the one who was righteous, including himself, doesn't receive the righteousness that ultimately matters. And the one that everybody would have been sure was the, the one who was going to be judged for his sin is forgiven. And again, it brings us back to what we saw last week in chapter 17. Like when Jesus returns, two people are going to be sleeping next to each other or working next to each other, and one's going to be taken away in judgment, and the other is going to be left to enter the kingdom. And what's the difference between the two? It's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's spelled out for us right here at the end of verse 14. And here's the point of this parable. You can see this, the last two points on your handout here. First, those who exalt themselves will be humbled in the judgment to come. Oh, if you, if you exalt yourself by trusting in yourself that you're righteous and by treating others with contempt, you're going to find yourself in the group that's taken away in judgment when Jesus returns. Like, this is, this is a sobering warning. And, and maybe you need to hear it this morning. Like, again, we said this last week, we're not playing games here. Like, this, this is serious stuff. Jesus is going to come back and fully and finally establish his kingdom. And when he does... Those who don't belong to his kingdom are going to be carried away in judgment. And if your plan for that day is to exalt yourself by convincing yourself that you've done more than enough to be righteous on your own, uh, that there are, there are gross sinners out there, but you're not one of them, uh, and you, just, you trust in yourself that you're righteous, like the Pharisee, when, when Jesus returns, the warning here is that you're going to be humbled in the judgment to come. It's, it's, it's frightening. It's It's serious. But the good news is there's hope for you. There's hope for us because, you can see this next point then, those who humble themselves will be exalted in the kingdom to come. Those who humble themselves will be exalted in the kingdom to come. That's the other point in this parable here. And so, oh, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, like my prayer is and has been this week that, that God would use this parable, even this morning, to humble your heart over your sin. Like I pray that he's opening your eyes to see how desperately your need is for his mercy, for a blood sacrifice that can not only just cover your sins like the Old Testament sacrifices, but take away your sin. And, and you know what the good news is? The good news is that the one who is telling this parable was on his way to Jerusalem to make atonement for the sins of tax collectors and extortioners and the unjust and adulterers and Pharisees. Like he's on his way to the cross to take your sin on himself, pour out his blood as an atoning sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath against you. Just like John said, John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, that's the good news in light of this story. The tax collector's crying out that God would make atonement for him, and Jesus is on his way to do it. 
So, oh, like, yeah, if you've never prayed the prayer of the tax collector and cried out to God for mercy, you can do that today. It's not too late. So please, please come talk to me, talk to somebody around you before you leave this morning. We'd, we'd love to talk to you if that's you. Um, if you're here this morning and you'd, you'd call yourself a Christian, but you realize from this parable that the Pharisee is more accurate picture of you than the tax collector is, then, then maybe you need to examine your heart this morning. Like, have you truly cried out to God for atonement for your sins like the tax collector? Or have you been trusting in yourself that you're righteous like the Pharisee? Again, it's not too late to cry out to God for mercy. And, and for all of us here, all of us need to be reminded just how easy it is to, for us to slip into this kind of a mindset that begins to look at our own righteousness and treat others with contempt. And we need to be humbled by how much like the Pharisee we can be, how weak and helpless we actually are, how much we should be people who are characterized by repentance and humility uh, like the tax collector. Because it's those who receive the kingdom of God like little babies who will enter the kingdom of God. It's those who are weak and helpless and cry out to God for what they need. It's those who humble themselves and cry out for mercy. It's those who have faith so they keep crying out to, for Jesus to return and make things right. Like that's how you make sure you're ready for the kingdom and the judgment to come. Let's pray together. Father, would you use this passage to work in our hearts this morning? Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that hasn't humbled themselves before you, cried out for mercy, Lord, would you give them that gift this morning? You made atonement for us. God, would you open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel? Father, would you forgive us for exalting ourselves as if we were in a different category from anybody else, as if we're righteous in ourselves? God, would you make us people who receive the kingdom like little children? Make us people who are characterized by the faith of the widow, the humility of the tax collector. God, remind us who we are, that we're weak helpless little babies who can do nothing for ourselves. Lord, we cry out this morning for your mercy. Cry out for Jesus to come back and make things right. Lord, thank you for reminding us of these things in this passage this morning. Would you be glorified in us as we, as we meditate on these things and apply them in our lives. Um, do, do what you want to do in each of our hearts through these things this morning. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.